Genesis 12, 1 through 7. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Moreh. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Please turn with me in your Bibles this morning to Galatians chapter 3. If you're using the Pew Bibles in front of you, we'll be turning to page 973. And in today's passage, we're going to be looking at chapter 3, verses 15 through 29. And as we turn our attention there, as we begin to think about what God has to say to us this morning, I just want to ask you a question What can you not live without? What can you not live without? I remember as a child, growing up in northern Alabama, some of my favorite memories, my most exciting times as a kid were when we had a tornado warning. And tornado warnings do wonderful things to clarify the mind of a child. And so when the storm was coming in and the threat of the house being blown away because of an incoming uh, twister was there, I would take an open backpack and sit in my room uh, and just fill the backpack to the brim with all of my favorite things. I would stuff it with uh, books and toys and all of the stuffed animals that I loved and cherished because in that backpack were all the things that I thought that I could not live without. What can you not live without? I asked the internet that question this past week, and I got a number of answers. There were the obvious ones, the things that you can probably rattle off. You can't live without food, water, or shelter. But then there were plenty of personal items, personal things that people felt that they couldn't live without. Coffee, a phone, the internet, a particular brand of peanut butter bar, loving relationships, Diet Coke, And that one was funny because the author who said that he couldn't live without Diet Coke had this to say, I read a story about a guy who died drinking from too much Diet Coke and he drank less than I do. We all have stuff like this, stuff that we just feel like we can't live without. Now, as Christians, I think we all feel the need to say Jesus, right? We can't live without Jesus. But if we're honest with ourselves, for most of our waking moments, that's more of a theoretical need than a felt need. We know we should say that, 
because it's the right thing to say, but not necessarily because we actually feel it on a daily basis. Often our attachment to caffeine is greater than our attachment to Jesus. And so it's helpful for us to take a step back and for us to reflect and remember why Jesus is indispensable. I think that's what's going on in Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 through 29. In this week's text, Paul shows us that Jesus is the key to all of our desires. Everything that we really want and need in life, Jesus is central to that. This text targets three main religious desires and says if you want those, then you need Jesus. Jesus is the only way for us to get what we want and what we need. We cannot live without Jesus. And so, brothers and sisters, let's turn our attention to this text and meet the indispensable Christ. Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 through 29. To give a human example, brothers... Even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the purposes of God or the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming of faith would be revealed. So then... The law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you all are one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Our wonderful and majestic Lord who speaks to us through this word, 
Jesus Christ, the word of God in flesh, please use your spirit to illuminate this word to us so that we would be able to behold and apprehend the truth of you. You are indispensable. We cannot live without you. Teach us why. And drive that truth into our hearts so that we would believe. And as we believe, we would have life. Grant us this grace, we ask now through the Holy Spirit and in the strong name of Jesus Christ, amen. So this is a deep and rich passage that we've just looked at together. Paul, throughout it, is making at times some kind of complicated arguments. And when I was reading it, maybe you found yourself wondering at at various points in that text, what exactly is Paul trying to say? So whenever you hit a passage like that in the Holy Scriptures, the best thing to do is to try and pay attention to the structure of it. The structure can give you clues as to what the overall point is. As we study this text, as I just read it, there are three distinct sections or segments that overlap enough to declare one major theme. The text, as I've been wrestling with it this past week, it feels to be kind of like three interlocking rings. Uh, When you're looking at three interlocking rings, you can see that there are three distinct segments, but they uh, they all overlap. They all cohere at these key points, and so it communicates to us one unified whole. That structure in today's passage gives us the meaning. Paul is telling us exactly why we should trust in Christ and not in our own religious efforts, and in that he gives us three reasons why we should trust Christ instead of ourselves. Number one, Jesus fulfills God's promise. Jesus fulfills God's promise. That's roughly verses 15 through 20, if you're following along in the passage. Number two, Jesus frees us from the law's guilt. That's roughly verses 21 through 24 in the passage. And then third, Jesus forms us into God's family. And that's roughly verses 25 through 29. That is why Jesus is indispensable. He is the key to everything we're looking for in life. Here's why you need Jesus. First, Jesus fulfills God's promise. Jesus fulfills God's promise. We've already seen throughout the book of Galatians that Paul is is arguing a lot from this central passage in the Old Testament scriptures, the promises to Abraham. Paul is constantly leaning on the promises to Abraham to show that the logic of scripture is always and only justification by faith. And so he uses this central text, this foundational text in the Old Testament to prove that point. Everyone in the Old Testament and everyone in Paul's day who were looking to the Old Testament for God's salvation wanted to share in Abraham's blessing. So it's the perfect place for him to turn to show that justification comes by faith alone. Now, in our particular passage today, Paul hones in on one specific aspect of God's promise to Abraham. In Genesis 12, which we've already read this morning, God promises to bless Abraham's offspring. Genesis 12:17, to your offspring I will give this land. 
In Genesis 13, 15, all the land that you see, I will give to you and your offspring forever. In the context of Genesis, and in the context of Abraham's story, this promise of land to offspring is an, an amazing promise. It's a stunning, stunning, gracious promise. If you think back to everything that the people had gone through up to that point in time, the promise of land is a pure blessing. In Genesis 3, Adam and Eve were expelled from their home. In Genesis 11, the people were dispersed from their home. In Genesis 12, Abraham and his family were told to go from his home. And so the promise of land is not simply, here's a set amount of acreage for you and your family to homestead. No, the promise of land meant stability, permanence, peace, and a dwelling in the presence of God. It's an amazing promise. Those were tremendous blessings. It's no wonder why the people of Paul's age wanted to share in that promise. And we probably don't go through our lives thinking to ourselves, how can I get into Abraham's promise? We think in different terms, but at our root, we want exactly the same things. In a world that is as transient and violent and as despairing as ours, who wouldn't want to live with God forever? Psalm 27.4 captures the true longing of all of our hearts. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. That is what God promised Abraham. And the question becomes, how can we have that blessing too? The false teachers in Galatia had an answer. Follow the law. Get circumcised. That's how you can inherit Abraham's promise. But Paul says, absolutely not. No way. Your obedience to the law will never fulfill God's promise. The law was never able to provide all of those spiritual blessings for two reasons. First, the promise came before the law. As Paul says in verse 17, the promise was given 430 years before the law. And so it would be an astounding change if God would say, all of these blessings are yours, dot, 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 And then 430 years later, come back and tell the people of Israel, all these things are yours if you obey the law. If you obey all of these rules. A change like that would never stand in a human court. And so there's no way that the righteous and true God of the universe would make some sort of change like that for his beloved people. The promise came before the law, and second, the promise is more grand than the law. The promise, as Paul tells us, came by free grace. The law was given because of transgression. 
The promise was given to Abraham directly. We already heard that this morning in Genesis 12. But the law came to Israel through an intermediary. Moses was the one who ended up delivering the law to the people of Israel. And as Paul says in verse 20, an intermediary implies a type of two-way agreement. Two parties are coming to the table together to make something work. Whereas the promise that God gave was a, an abundantly gracious one-way offer. So the promise is more grand than the law. You can think of it like this. An engagement ring is far more grand than a household chore list. An engagement ring is a thing of splendor and beauty. It's a promise and a pledge. You celebrate an engagement ring. And compared to that, a household chore list is important, It helps the household run smoothly. It it helps keep things in the household fair, but it's not a thing of beauty. We don't walk around and show our friends our brand new household chore list. So one thing is more grand than the other, and it's exactly the same with the law and the promise. The law is important, but it's just not the same as the promise. One regulates life, The other gives life. And so your obedience to the law will never fulfill God's promise. Obedience to the law will not get you access to the spiritual blessings that you crave. For that, you need Christ. Verse 16 The promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. Christ alone fulfills the promises to Abraham. It was given to him particularly, not just generally, to every single person. This is a major theme throughout the Old Testament. Abraham had two sons, but only one of them, was the child of the promise. Same with David. David had many sons, but only one got the crown. The Old Testament is constantly looking for the one person who will fulfill all of God's covenant promises, and it's Jesus. Jesus is the rightful heir to this promise, and the only way for you to share in Jesus' inheritance is to believe in him. Verse 22. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. And verse 29. If you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. <coughs> Excuse me. That's why you need Jesus. Jesus fulfills God's promise. Jesus gives you spiritual blessing. And that brings us to an important question. What is the law for? What is the law for if it can't grant us the blessings of salvation? What's its purpose? Paul has some haunting news for us. The law locks us in our guilt. The law locks us in our guilt. Verse 19, why then the law? It was added because of transgressions. 
Verse 22, but the scripture imprisoned everything under sin. Verse 23, the law held us captive. It imprisoned us. Verse 24, the law was our guardian until Christ came. Like we heard last week, the law speaks a word to us, and that word is guilty. The law condemns us. It's the mirror that shows us our own sinful tendencies and desires. It's kind of like the household chore list. Why do we need a household chore list in the first place? It's because we're selfish. It doesn't matter if you wrote the chore list on really pretty stationery. The very presence of the chore list says that you wouldn't serve each other without a reminder. You wouldn't go out of your way to clean up and share all of these tasks unless it was written down. The fact of the chore list represents, reflects to us our sinful dispositions, and the law is like that. It oversees our hearts, and it points out our sin. Paul, in this text, calls it a guardian. Herman Ritterboss, a reformed New Testament commentator, translates it as a jailkeeper. A jailkeeper, the authority figure who prevents you from escaping judgment. At our kids' school, every student in the school is responsible for completing a summer work packet. Uh, and this is one of the kids' summer work packets. So you can see that this is a, a large folder, and it is filled with all kinds of worksheets that you're supposed to complete over the summer. Every child is supposed to fill this thing out. And so it probably doesn't take you very long to figure out how kids think about it. What do you think the children think about this obligation? Homework over the summer. And guess what? If you don't diligently chip away at it over the summer months, then you have the distinct privilege or obligation of finishing the entire packet during your last week of summer vacation. And so imagine this. You're sitting inside in a chair at the table with that workbook in front of you and a pencil in your hand while the sun is out and you hear all your friends are outside playing. What does that feel like? You wish that you could escape, right? You wish that you could just leave and run away, but no, you can't because there's a parent who is standing over you the entire time saying, you can't leave, you have to get this done. That's the law. That is the law for us, what Paul says. And again, imagine that feeling. There's pressure. There's a sense of frustration. And the longer it lasts, the more that pressure grows. And so for us, it's the same with the law. We want to be free, but instead we are imprisoned. And so if the purpose of the law is to keep us in spiritual prison, there is no way that your obedience to the law can free you. You cannot work your way out of the restless awareness of your sin. Circumcision for these people would never bring spiritual peace. No matter how much you obey these laws, every single other transgression will grate at your soul. A law that condemns cannot be a law that frees you. 
Now, before we resolve that tension, I just want to address two quick questions that might have come up in your mind. You might be wondering, is that really all the law is for? What about all the positive uses of the law? The short answer is, remember the context. This isn't Paul's exhaustive, comprehensive theology of the Old Testament law for believers. This is his pointed argument against legalism. And so he highlights the negative side of the law. It is possible for us to approach the Old Testament law with a spirit of gratitude and joy, but if you're using it to try and earn salvation, you must understand that the law will not free you. It will only condemn you. And that leads to the second question you might be thinking, why did God set it up that way? It seems kind of cruel to imprison people in guilt. No one likes feeling guilty. Why would he do that? And the short answer to that is God intended the pressure of the law to lead you to Christ. It's like a can of soda that has been shaken up. All of the pressure that's in that can is longing for a release just wants to be free, and what Paul is saying is that under the law, you're under pressure, but there's a way out, and the way out is Christ. Jesus Christ is like popping the lid to a shaken can of soda. It is the release that you're looking for. God has placed us under pressure of the law so that we would long for the salvation that he gives us in Christ. And this is Paul's second point. Jesus frees us from the law's guilt. Jesus frees us from the law's guilt. Verse 22 again, that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. In verse 24, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. We can't obey our way out of the law's condemnation, but Jesus gifts us the way out. Last week, we learned about substitutionary atonement, that Jesus died in our place, taking on himself the curse that we deserved. And this week, our theological phrase is imputed righteousness. When we believe in Jesus, he gifts to us his own righteousness. The only way for us to gain righteousness, to gain relief from our guilt and from our shame, is to believe in Jesus. Righteousness comes through faith, not works. Friends, the pathway to spiritual peace is by believing in Jesus. For As much flack as our God gets in our culture, the truth is that he is far more generous and far more gracious than any of the medicine that our culture offers to our sin-sick souls. Yes, it's true, God imprisoned everything under sin, but he did it, again, to drive us to the path of salvation that he offers that he provides for us, which is Christ crucified for you. God tells you that you are sinful so that you will look to him for salvation as a gift. And in our world, in our culture, the pathway to spiritual peace is through more work. Try this. And if this doesn't work, then try that instead. On the surface, our culture seems really permissive. 
because you're allowed to do anything you want, but if you look a lot closer, it's just works righteousness again. It is salvation by effort. But the truth is that a new lifestyle, a new look, a new career, a new experience will never cleanse your conscience. And you will only have to try harder, try again. Your obedience to the law will not free you from the guilt of the law. That's why you need Christ. Jesus Christ frees us from the law's guilt and he gives us spiritual peace. And finally, Jesus forms us into God's family. Jesus forms us into God's family. There's a social dynamic to the gospel. Since the beginning of time, we've known that it is not good for man to be alone. Human persons were made in God's image, and God exists in community. The Father, Son, and Spirit, one God, three persons. And so when we're made in his image, it's natural for us to crave community. We deeply desire a place to belong. And this helps us understand why the Gentile believers might be considering circumcision in the first place. If, if I could put it delicately, uh, circumcision would be a big deal for an adult male Gentile. And so you might wonder why in the world would they be even considering something like that in the first place? Well, there was the promise of spiritual fulfillment if you were told point blank that your circumcision would provide you the blessings that God gave to Abraham, then you probably would consider it. But that's not the only thing going on. The other thing that's happening in this text and was happening in that church is community pressure. To be a Christian in the Roman Empire was to be incredibly lonely and isolated. The Gentile Romans, the Roman pagans, had a lot of imperial, cultish, religious practices that would order their common lives. And so if you were a Gentile who converted to Christ, you lost all of the identity markers that made you comfortable and that would tell you who you were and your place within the community. You lost your community when you turned to Jesus. And so if someone comes up to you and says, look, all you need to do is be circumcised, and you can join this religious community with all of these ancient rituals. We will provide community for you. You are going to be incredibly tempted to gain that social benefit. And so Paul must speak clearly. He must say your obedience to the law will not form you into God's family. And that's true, both spiritually and socially. Obedience to the law will not make you a Christian. You cannot become a child of God through effort. And socially, you cannot create true community by forcing others to follow particular practices in order to belong. Your obedience to the law will not form you into God's family. Thankfully, Jesus forms us into God's family. Jesus forms us into God's family. Jesus offers each and every one of us a place to belong. Listen to verses 26 through 28. In Christ Jesus, you all are sons of God through faith. 
For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Three times in three verses you hear the phrase in Christ. When you are saved, you are united to Christ. That is the most intimate form of belonging. In Christ Jesus, every single one of you are welcomed as sons. And that's really good news because then you can call on God as your heavenly father. And it's really good news for women. Ladies, sisters, when Paul says that you are sons, he is not trying to make you men or say that it is only acceptable to come close to God as men. No, what Paul is saying is that in Christ, you, Christian women, are equal inheritors of the promise along with your Christian brothers. In the ancient world, it was always and only the males that received the inheritance. The daughters did not receive inheritance. The women didn't receive the inheritance. And so Paul says, you are equal in Christ Jesus. You are all equal inheritors of all of the blessings that Jesus gives to his people. Men and women are welcome to God equally as heirs of the covenants. And the sacraments of the church uphold that. Christian baptism demonstrates the equality of the covenant of grace. Because men and women, adults and children, are welcomed into Jesus' community. And you're all offered the same unifying and empowering clothing, which is Jesus Christ himself. You are all clothed in Christ. And this is why, in Christ... Jew and Gentile are one. Slave and free are one. Male and female are one. Jesus values us the same. In Christ, our old systems of worth don't work anymore. We are clothed in Jesus. And so ethnicity or class, or gender, all of the things that human beings use to differentiate us from each other and to establish some sort of social pecking order, all of these are now worthless to determine status or to exercise power within the kingdom. As the New Testament scholar John Barclay says, Jesus undermines all inherited systems of worth. And then he gives us a new system of worth, which is union with Christ. And so this doesn't mean that we should pursue a program of cultural assimilation and make just one uniform church culture. No, God actually loves diversity. It's just that he loves each and every single one of us equally in Christ. And therefore, you belong. You belong here You are welcome here. If you trust in Jesus Christ, then this is your family. Jesus forms us into God's family. That is why you need Jesus. Jesus is absolutely indispensable. He alone gives us spiritual blessing. He alone gives us spiritual peace. And he alone gives us a place 
to belong. These are our deepest spiritual longings, and Jesus gives them to us as a gift when we believe in him. And so when you add all of that up together, there are just two things that you need to know today. One, if you are trying to find spiritual blessing, spiritual peace, and a place to belong without Christ, you won't succeed. You won't be able to gain those important needs and longings for yourself. All of your efforts will fall flat at one point or another. And so please, if you are not a Christian, I would urge you, trust in Christ. Stop your empty pursuits and find everything that you want in Jesus. That's the first thing we need to know. And the second thing that we need to know is that if you have Christ, you already have everything you need. If you have Jesus, you have everything that you need. You may want more money. You may wish you had more time, more friendships, more opportunities. But Jesus gives you God. All of those other things are are nice. But Jesus is essential and he is yours by faith. And so take some time this week to savor him. Take stock of your lives. Evaluate your hopes and dreams and consider everything that Jesus promises you. You truly cannot live without him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this word. We thank you for your kindness to us in Christ. We thank you for the wonderful promises that you give us. We ask now that you would confirm those to us. It's one thing for us to declare that if we have Christ, we have everything we need. It's another to believe it. And so I pray that through your spirit, and now as we go to the Lord's Supper, that you would imprint that into our souls so that we would believe and trust that we have everything we need in Christ. Help us to cease working for our salvation and simply enjoy the salvation that Jesus gives to us as a gift. Lord, bless us. We yearn to experience the grace that this passage promises to us. We long for stability and security. We long for a place of welcome. We long for spiritual peace. Give that to us now through the Spirit as we trust in Christ anew. We pray in his name. Amen.